Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. It's your host, Aaron Lammer, here with my good friends, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Good day to you, sirs. You're, you're the host and we're your friends. Is, this is the Aaron show now? Yes. The Aaron Hour? It's important to have a hierarchy. Thanks for letting us join you on your show yeah. today. Yeah, it's Aaron. wonderful to be here. Thanks. Uh, so you guys won't be here for the whole hour, but you're uh, welcome to hang around and, and look in through the window. Aaron, who'd you have on the podcast today on your show? I had um, the guest on the Aaron Lammer show this week is Elizabeth Wurzel. Um, probably best known for her first book, Prozac Nation, but has returned in the last few years um, writing essays for New York Magazine and The Atlantic and, and various places. Um, she is an interesting person. I enjoyed talking to her. She's the kind of person I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad this show gives me a forum to meet people like Elizabeth Wurzel. She, um, she's got some opinions and she knows how to back them up. Hey, man, it's your show. You can meet anyone you want to. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, now that I now that it's a wide open, I'm just going to have all kinds of people on the show. You know what else has been sort of wide open lately? Oh, what's, what's is that? your is your goal in FIFA? Your goal has been wide open, and I've been kicking the ball uh, right through the opening. I would say, dominating fashion for a couple of weeks now. Yeah, I think this whole trash talking uh, tactics uh, it's it's getting a little old and juvenile. That's but what we, I would say we, if I was losing all the time. We too. we we thank our uh, sponsor, uh, EA Sports FIFA 14. Uh, if you want to change up your game, you might want to start an email newsletter with the good people at Mailchimp's Tiny Letter. Uh, it's a simple, powerful, elegant way to send an email newsletter. We thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, and if you would like to send some news out to the world about this podcast, please do. I.e that you really enjoyed it, please review us on iTunes. Uh, those reviews help us. They help us feel better about ourselves more <laughs> than anything else. Um, Evan, do you have anything else that you'd like to plug? Yes, we have an out of a story out right now by David Kushner. It's called The Bones of Mariana. It's uh, an investigative piece. It's also extremely gripping. Uh, check it out, atavis.com. You can buy it there. Here's Aaron and Elizabeth. Hello, Elizabeth Wurzel. Hi. Welcome to uh, welcome to the Longform Studios. Thank you. We've we've already had a uh, we have we've 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 slowly uh, dipped into this conversation already, and I had to stop you so that we would not uh, burn out our uh, speaking fire. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, actually, decent place to start. You you are a you are a native New Yorker. No? I am. I am. You are on your home turf here. I am. I am a fifth generation Manhattanite. Where where did you grow up? I grew up on the Upper West Side. What was the New York of your childhood like? The New York of my childhood was, um, I think, I don't think I thought of it as wild. I think I thought of it as just where I lived. But looking back on it, it was, I mean, I think it, I've never been to Lahore, but I think it's probably like Lahore is now. I remember walking down the street and cars would explode, <laughs> you know just because they were there. I I think that was probably, could that, I don't know if it was like because the mafia was in charge 
I don't know who was in charge. I suppose Mayor Beam was in charge, but he clearly was not really in charge. Um, but it was um, a city. I grew up on 95th and Columbus, and I remember, you know, Harlem was on fire frequently, not all the time, and not very far away. And it was just, um, I don't remember feeling like anything was wrong, though. It was just really where I lived. But, you know, the Upper West Side was, um, it, it was a, a very, it's funny because it was a very, as we would say, um, the Jewish way to say it would be, it was a very Hamish place. I mean, it wasn't, there was nothing elegant about it at all. Um, you know, a lot of it was fairly burnt out and, uh, you know, not nice at all. I suppose Central Park West was always pretty nice. But it, but I mean, that was just during a period of time where if you could afford it, you moved to the suburbs. Nothing, there was nothing like, there was nothing elegant about Manhattan. And so you could not afford to move to the suburbs? No, definitely not. I, I, I mean, my mom was a single mother and we, um, we lived in this apartment. I remember it was apartment 11J on 95th and Columbus over a food city. That was the supermarket. And I used to, um, after school, I would go downstairs and hit tennis balls against the wall outside until my mom got home from work. I mean, this was, I just, I mean, it was, but I don't remember it seeming like a bad thing at all. It was just how everybody kind of was. What were your high school years like? Well, I worked very hard. They were, I, I remember just doing a lot of homework. That's most of what I remember about high school. I was, uh, I was intense. What, what drove that? I mean, what, what made you want to work hard and, and what did working hard mean to you at that point? Working hard meant that, I, I mean, I was one of these people, I, I was a, I was not an A student, I was an A plus student. I was incredibly hard on myself. Um, I also, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I had, I, I mean, I had my whole life planned. I had my whole life planned when I was like six years old. I mean, I had a sense of things being very chaotic around me. This was, I think it was like New York City in the late 60s and early 70s and things were chaotic. I think like things were extremely crazy. You know, when I was 10 years old, we had a blackout that was like, and there was like looting in the streets. And it was, you know, this was, I mean, years before the LA riots, but it was kind of like that. You know, I, th I think this was just, I think things were fairly crazy. I mean, have you ever seen movies from that era? Have you seen Dog Day Afternoon? I have, was, yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it was right to think that things were not really. I think it, my sense that like things were shiftless and that the ground was often not stable. You know, I think the ground often was not stable. I think we had infrastructure problems. I think everything did not feel very good. So I was just worried a lot. I mean. When I was six years old, I wanted to be an entomologist. I had collections of like grasshoppers and things like that that I kept, and I and I had a microscope, and I would look at them in un, under, you know, I would make slides of them, and I would look at them, and I I really was, and I had bothered to figure out that the University of Utah had a really good entomology department, and I asked my father to get me applications to to college there, because I was already planning for that. You also know, to be a writer, though. No, no, no. I was not thinking about that. Not I was, yet. I was going to write about bugs, maybe. Uh, okay. You know, I was. I, that's what I was thinking, I think. I think I wanted to be a scientist. But, I mean, I was, I was very serious. You know, I was very serious because I didn't think people around me were serious. Did you, at what point did you start channeling your sort of energy as a writer into writing? I mean, what was the first thing you wrote about yourself? Well, I think maybe when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I wrote a paper about Nazi propaganda. 
you know, something like that. You know, it was some something that I had to do for class, and the teacher told me it was really smart and that I should be a writer. And I thought, oh, that makes sense. And then I think I wrote something, I guess, um, uh, when John Lennon died, I think I wrote something for the yearbook, and that was very personal. You know, I was very upset by that. Everybody was very upset by that. Close to home. Yeah, and that was, I, I, by that time, we had moved farther downtown, and I lived right near the Dakota. Um, and I was very affected by it. I also happened to have seen Bruce Springsteen play in Philadelphia the night after John Lennon died. And so I was really affected by that. Um, that was something that people thought was really very good, um, that piece of writing. They thought it was really, really very, very well done. And that made a huge difference because I was very depressed at that point. I had really slipped into a very bad depression at about age 11. And that was something that a lot of people saw that were close to me and they thought that was something I did well and that made me think that maybe there was a point to life like I kind of thought maybe this was something I could do when it's, you when you started out as a writer what what was your perception of, of what writing was I mean when you're a teenager um, what 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 kind of a career did you see having for yourself well, I just wanted to be a journalist a journalist I mean I didn't I didn't know what kind of journalist. I just thought I would be a journalist. What what kind of journalism did you see yourself doing? I I wasn't really sure, but I really I liked telling stories. I just I I didn't it didn't matter to me that much. Like that's the funny thing. I think people forget this. Like with I mean, if you read, I actually I read the Times every day, and you forget like what a pleasure it is to read, you know, just the news when it's done well. Yeah. I mean, so much is not done well because there's not enough like paid reporters anymore, so you forget this. But people who like are professional writers who are like paid decently to do what they do, like that's good work. You know, it's I mean, and I I think I just kind of thought of it as like I mean, early on when I was in high school, um as a senior in high school, I had an internship at New York Magazine, and I wrote a bunch of stories for the front of the book that were just where I where I reported on things that were going on. I mean, I went to Far Rockaway and wrote about the bungalows that were um, by the beach there that had been actually this is this is this is still true. They're still there, and. They had been turned into year-round homes by people who, you know, just needed places to live. But they had at one time been lovely summer homes for people like who had, you know, apartments in Manhattan, let's say. And suddenly there were people trying to do that again. It was because there's, you know, you could actually surf in Far Rockaway. Oh, yeah, I know people who do. And yeah, and, you know, you could just take the A train and go surf there. So there were people who thought this was a good idea. But... I'm just, I mean, I would just kind of like report on whatever I could find to report on. And it was, I, I thought that was really fun. Well, I got to pause you there. So you're 17, 18 years old and you're an intern and you're writing stories. I mean, that sounds simple in the way you're describing it, but that's actually fairly difficult to do. I mean, where did, how did you, how did you learn how to interview people and how to turn these sort of, how did these stories into a finished reported piece? Oh, well, I got an internship and what I did was I would just go through any like I would just go through the mail I was working for the managing editor and I just went through all her mail I would just see what any anything that was going on I would just think that sounds interesting if it didn't sound interesting to anybody else it and it sounded interesting to me and usually there were always things that didn't sound interesting to other people that sounded in, like that story about the bungalows yeah I mean I don't know why no one else thought it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, but I also did not stop bugging people. I mean, people don't know how to do that anymore. They think that you can get things done with a text message. You can't get things done with a text message. What, what does bugging people mean to you? It means asking people if you can do something until they say yes. 
I mean, you just have to ask until they say yes. And as you developed and started writing more pieces, you also worked for the Harvard paper. Yeah, when I got to Harvard. What, how did your... Um... Actually, I mostly wrote movie reviews for the Harvard paper. Really? Yes. That was like, uh, that's all I did for them. I wrote movie reviews. And I, I wrote some opinion pieces, but I mostly just wrote movie reviews. When did you, when do you start experimenting with other kinds of writing? Well, I mean, I did actually, I did write for The Crimson. I wrote about ecstasy and I wrote about my own experiences with that. And actually, when I was in high school, I wrote about my own experiences for Seventeen. Um, I wrote, you know, I wrote personal essays for them. So I always had, I always was doing that. And it always seemed that, you know, when you wrote stuff, I mean, it seemed to work out that telling one's own story was a good thing. I mean, that seemed to be something that people liked. Um, But I didn't, I actually never had a strong opinion that this was like what needed to happen. But what, what actually, the way Prozac Nation came about was just that Harvard had the 350th anniversary. And New York, I mean, I was still occasionally doing things for New York Magazine while I was um, at Harvard, and they asked me if I would write something about Harvard on the occasion of its 350th anniversary. And I ended up writing, I think, it had to have been at least 20,000 words. It was just way too long and way too... <laughs> you turn in 20,000 words for, for that. Yeah, it was like it was just way more than like anybody wanted to deal with. And what was the reaction? Well, I, they didn't end up publishing it. I mean, uh, it just they just I mean, I gave it to an an editor there who I'd been working with who just said like you know, I don't know what to do with this. This is so long. This is like there this is not an article. This is this is the beginning of a book. Yeah. And I thought, well then I should just give it to an agent. So I did give it to an agent who thought, yeah, this is the beginning of a book. You should turn it into a book. So it actually was first sold to Crown as a book about Harvard. It wasn't sold as a book about depression. Then it was sold again. I mean, it it, it had many incarnations. Like, I, I think anybody who is trying to write a first book or a second book or a third book or like an eighth book, and it goes through different publishers, different agents, you know, different forms, like you throw out like several drafts, whatever, like everything goes wrong with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And how did you end up getting a job at The New Yorker? Um, I called Bob Gottlieb and I told him I wanted the job. And he said yes? Um, He didn't say yes right away, but I sent him some of my writing. And then, well, I sent him, first I sent him my clips yeah. Then he asked to see the my drafts. So I sent him my drafts, and he liked my drafts better than he liked the final clips. And then he hired me. Hey, quick break here with a word from our sponsor, EA Sports FIFA 14. It's a soccer or football, depending where you're listening, video game for the Xbox and PS3. Uh, I can honestly endorse this product in that I have spent many, many hours this month playing it uh, along with Max and Evan and various other people who have passed through our office. Um, We've got a few copies here to give away. So if you send an email to editors at longform.org, we'll give the first five people a uh, video game. And uh, we thank EA for their sponsorship. It's really, really nice. Um, Here's back to Elizabeth Wurzel. Which was good because actually, right before he hired me, I was all set to take a job writing the copy that went with like pornographic magazines. Hmm. Like, uh, uh, which which portion of the copy? Like the stuff that, like, I mean, I just was. I I think I was at that point trying to write. Um, my I was trying to write Prozac Nation, and I was definitely running out of money. Like, I had definitely like, you know run through my advance which was like you know whatever it was it wasn't like anything so great and I I um I just needed to like find money and I applied for a job 
working at like whatever the company is that like you know publishes one of them it publishes all of them like whatever it's, it's like Bob Guccione's it's uh, no 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 pen. it's not that one no 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 it's like nothing nearly so so elegant yeah. as that <laughs> it's um it publishes like you know barely legal and oh, um okay, yeah. and thigh high and you know all of them yeah and somebody has to write the stories that go with the pictorials oh, this is like erotic fiction we're talking about oh, that's if you want to put it that way <laughs> um erotica <laughs> that is actually like a much more refined way to put it than than is is correct. Okay. Um, and the guy who ran the whole thing was like, you do realize that most of the people reading this are in jail. And I was like, well, I have no problem with people in jail. You know, and he said, okay, well, then you probably can do this. So wait, how did you get hooked up with the pornography magazine? Oh, I just like answered a wanted ad. They were like, wanted captions for... Erotic pictorials. Yeah, something like that. And you, as a 22-year-old woman, show up and say, hey, I want to do this. Well, I just needed a job. I mean, they weren't so specific in the ad, like, about <laughs> what it was I was getting myself into, but I just needed a job. And so Gottlieb basically, that's a totally different career path that you could be, like, the, like, publisher of Maxim now. If, if, you, if, if we had gone that direction. Well, insofar as, like, you can say that there's something about luck. Yes. Like, insofar as there's, it's a possibility that, like, there is luck in this world. Yeah. But you can't say that there's luck because for a full, maybe, set for many months, maybe even a year, I had been, you know, bugging Bob Gottlieb to, like, give me a job. So you went, so you went to New Yorker. And you were doing music reviews at the I, New Yorker. Yes. I was at New York Magazine before that. Before that. On to the New Yorker. Doing music reviews, what I mean, what what kind of a were you like into music reviews? Is that just a job? Oh, for I know. I lo I love writing about music. I love writing about music now. What, what it's actually really fun. I I I wish I kept up with music now because I would love to write about music again. But I I don't. I would you to write about music that way, like to be a music critic for a publication. You really have to keep up in a way that I just I don't have such a desire to anymore. I, found, I had a hard time doing it when it was really was my job to do it. I mean, I, I just liked what I liked. But, you know, it could there, there are certain places it could work for. I mean, there's, I, I read about, I just wrote something about the replacements. Um, and, um, and it wasn't really a music review, but I ended up writing a lot about music. But it was really fun to um, write about music. I think I actually am, I think it's something I'm good at. Because I have like a sense of fun about it that I think I, it, mostly it's written about by men and I think men are not good at it. What I, think kind men, of, I think men shouldn't even be allowed to do it. What kind of music writing? I mean, did you have like idols, music writing idols when you were doing that? Did you? No, want... I can't. I couldn't stand the way anybody wrote about music. I think they're all terrible. I think <laughs> they all should be stopped. I think all men should not be allowed to write about music and there aren't very many women doing it. I thought, um, I thought actually... The woman who, um, Ellen, what's her name, who did it for the New Yorker years before me, was terrific. Ellen. Um, I was going to um, say her, her Ellen pieces, Willis, but that's Ellen a Willis. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she was she was fantastic. Yeah, um, she was fantastic, and that's am it's amazing to say that because she was so very serious. But um, but it's seriously. Seriously, the problem is that people are much too serious about it. And the whole point of rock and roll is that it's great fun. I mean, I can't, like, one more guy with a Jufro writing about Bruce Springsteen, it's a crime. <laughs> Must stop. I mean, I can't believe David Remnick wrote a profile of Bruce Springsteen. He assigned that to himself. That <laughs> is a crime. How dare he? That, no, like, should, no not, comment. Have, that no should comment. not have happened. Uh, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't read it, but I'm sure it was a terrible piece of writing. What what was your favorite thing that you wrote while you were at the New Yorker? Um, I actually I wrote a rather bad review of Bruce Springsteen. I wrote something interesting about Guns N' Roses. I think I but I can I barely remember. So you were still working on Prozac Nation at this point, though. Yes. And what happened to your life when it came out? Well, mostly it was not that different. I, I mean, some things were different in the sense that I was touring a lot. So I got, I was tired. Um, a lot wasn't different because um, actually that's the interesting thing about something phenomenal that happens to your life is that mostly nothing changes. 
mean you have the same friends, you still have to take the trash out. Like not a lot changes. I mean, that's, that's the shocking thing about shocking things happening to your life is that nothing much changes. You're still you. That's so annoying. <laughs> it's like the most annoying thing about a big thing happening is that like you, you are still fucking you. It's like. Was that a revelation to you at the time? Yes, it was annoying. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe I remained me. I mean, then a lot of amazing things happened. I met interesting people. Like, you know, it was like kind of exciting. But all in all, I was still me. And I didn't like that at all. I was quite disappointed by that. I found that very upsetting. What parts of yourself did you hope to shed or I, hope to change? There was nothing in particular I wanted to change. I just like wanted to feel better, and I didn't feel better. I felt the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, I was very surprised that, that I didn't feel any sense of, you know, betterness about things. I felt, I felt actually quite a sense of betterness when I completed the book. You know, the truth is that that there is great satisfaction in in achievement when you actually do achieve something. And it's quite an achievement to write a book. It's nice. I mean, it's a nice feeling, but it doesn't last that long. It's not, it, that's not going to make you feel that different. I mean, the truth is that like anything, I mean, everything they say that people tell you this all the time, but any any real change that's going to happen to you is from the inside. And... But it's it's still really amazingly disappointing to see that that is so true. You had something you said that sort of struck me. You said, um, I don't write because I feel like it or I have something to say. I write because it is what I do. And I'm wondering if you could sort of explain what that means to you when you say, I write because I love writing. Most people write to communicate something specifically or to tell a story. What what do you mean by that It's some, it's what you do? I mean, it it's it is what I do. It's I'm, it's it's actually first of all, it's what I'm good at. Uh huh. Um. I mean, people like getting emails from me. You know, my emails are better than your emails. That's all, almost certainly true. I'm. You know, I just. I mean, I'm just. I have a way with words. It's just what I do. I don't like. There's not something else I'm supposed to be doing. There's not some better plan for me. I don't, there's not something else that like is, you know, there's not some better setup here. I don't like, I, you know, I've had, at times it's come up that, you know, maybe you should try like adding this to your repertoire. And I mean, when I say this, I, I mean like writing for TV or writing for movies or whatever. I'm really good at writing on the page. Like my words are really good just as words on the page. You know, they're not they're not bad in other forms either. I don't I don't think they wouldn't be bad in some other way. But I am, um, you know, this is what I do. Um, I really it's very hard. I actually find it funny that people tell me they want to write. I have no idea why. It's the hardest thing you can do sitting down. It's very hard work. It's when people say to me, by the way, you know, and I I went to law school. When people say to me that they want to be writers or when people, sometimes somebody actually says to me, I'm going to write a book or I want to write a book. I'm like, how about going to law school? That's something you can do. Why don't you do that? Because like, I'll bet you could do that. And I bet that'll work out just fine for you. It's not that hard to be a lawyer. Like any fool could be a lawyer. Really hard to be a writer. I mean, you have to be born with incredible amounts of talent that you're just born with. Then you have to work hard. Then you have to have, like, you have to be able to handle, like, tons of rejection and not mind it and, like, you know, just keep pushing away at it. You have to, like, you know, show up at people's doors. I mean, you can't, like, just email and text message people. You have to, like, bang their doors down. Like, you know, you have to be interesting. You have to be fucking phenomenal to, like, get a book published and, like, then sell the book. I mean... All that stuff, like the things that when people think like that their writing career is not working out, it's not working out because it's so damn hard. It's not harder now than it was 20 years ago. It's just as hard. It was always hard. It's hard. So you became a lawyer, though, despite despite this being the Um, only thing you're good at, you actually did become. Oh, no, I I went to law school. I loved law school. All right. So why did you go to law school first? Oh, I wanted to go. I always wanted to go to law school. 
And there was like a period in my life when I wasn't doing much anyway, and I thought I might as well go to law school. And did you intend to practice law when you were doing that? or I never intended to practice law, and I would be hard-pressed to say that that is what I do. I mean, I actually do something. Yeah. Um, but I would not say it's practicing law exactly. There's a there's a there's been a streak on this show of people who are writers who who have who have law degrees. Uh, Patrick Radden Keefe is a lawyer, I believe. Charles Duhigg, who I interviewed, is a lawyer. And it seems to me that there is some sort of brain overlap here, where people who are writers are interested in in the methodologies of the law. What what attracted you to to the law? Well, I always wanted to go to law school. I just always thought it would be really interesting, and it is really interesting. And I also have to say, you know, I, I felt like, I mean, I think this is something that is lost on people. Like, I'm, you know, I had a phenomenal amount of success when I was very young. And that was extremely satisfying. I mean, in spite of what I'm saying, like about it not having, you know, having had like changed me, but like in terms of like satisfying my need for a phenomenal kind of success, yes, I, it satisfied that. Like, I felt like I could do something that I just felt like doing. Like, I felt like, what, why not? And I'll write another book when I feel like it. I mean, everything I do after like having had the success I had with Prozac Nation, I do because I feel like it. I felt like writing a few more books. Then I felt like going to law school. Now I feel like writing a book again, I'm writing a book again. So I think the answer is I felt like going to law school. And now that you've returned to the to the writing world after spending more time on law over the last few years, do you have new things that you want to write about? I mean, have have these things been piling up for you or when you're not in writing mode or is it all just kind of pass you by? No, I I mean, the interesting thing is um I've I've learned just the value of writing every day. Yeah. Um, and what I'm basically writing about um, is, you know, 20 years of living in New York. Um, that I mean, I would that's a that's one way to describe it. I mean, I'm turning the article I wrote for New York Magazine into a book. Right. And it's hard to say what that article was about. Well, on a very very zoomed out level, I would say it's about you, right? Right. And so, I would say that w it was sort of about 20 years of living in New York. So you're one of the few people that, that I've talked to who has pro written about yourself over a large portion of your lifespan. Um, we're talking about 20, 20 plus years uh, of, of covering yourself. How, how has that equation changed for you over time? Well, I think the thing that I... I have to say about it is that, you know, I write about myself as a way of writing about the world. I mean, I don't, I think, you know, I think I'm actually just like everybody else. I think that's really very true. I think that's true of everybody. I think we all have much more in common than we're different, unless you're a sociopath, in which case you are very different from most people. But most of us are pretty similar. I think like any, I mean, I pity the person who thinks he's different. I feel very sorry for that person. That's just not true. That person is living, is kidding himself greatly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all, we all are rather boringly similar. And so, I mean, the reason I tell my story is because I know it's everyone else's story. I know that like there, I mean, I'm not afraid to say things that are, would seem to other people to be terribly embarrassing because I know it's like, I'm just gonna find out that everyone has the exact same problem. I mean, I, I mean, that's, I feel like I'm safe when I say it and I'm unsafe when I keep it to myself. Um, you know, the thing about when I was growing up and I was so depressed was that my mother would tell me, you know, you're pretty and boys will like you if they don't know that you're crazy. So just don't let anyone know that this is what's wrong with you. And that was just terrible advice because actually, you know, it turns out everybody feels the way I feel. I would have been fine. So you were going to say, turns out pretty and crazy is the best combination. Well, that, I mean, that, that too. I mean, that, that's also true. But, you know, that's like another matter. I mean, although, you know, 
I'm not sure like what what you get what you get from that is that good. I mean, tra- you attract like you attract all kinds of other problems with that. But um, I mean, you know, I just think like the minute I like the minute I started talking about what was going on with me, like. It wasn't as if I found out that, like, people thought I was weird. I think people, I found out that people thought I was normal. You know, I, I seemed weird to people because I was hiding something. You always seem weird when, you, when you're hiding something. When you talk about what's going on, everyone is like, oh, that happened to me too. It's nothing. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, it is a weird thing if, like, you talk about your problems and it turns out that nobody relates. Like, you should wonder if that happens to you. Then you do have really weird problems and you are different. Yeah. But that's so rare. I'm interested because I, when I read that New York Magazine piece, it's an interesting way to describe it that it's your problems as sort of uh, universal. Because I'll give you sort of two examples. There's the opening of the story is about this crazy event with your sublet landlord stalking you and attacking. Yeah, I would say, I actually do think that that is fairly unusual. I was going to say, that seems to me to be the opposite of a universal human experience. I don't, yes, I don't think that's a universal, I'm not, that's not something I want to write more about. Okay, so that thankfully was the, is the sole, uh, sole appearance of, of that woman. But uh, uh, the second part of the piece is largely about y- yourself, you being out of step with other people not having settled down, not have gotten gotten a 401k, a marriage, a child, a lease, a, you know, that you're still living a sort of free-floating life, which to me as a reader did not give a feeling of, of sort of universal humanity, but of your specific situation and, and, and a realization on your own part that you were sort of, you were out of step with, with your peers. Um, tell me about how, how that sort of plays into your Oh, Logic. I know. Oh, but I th- actually think that the point is that so many people feel the same way. So many people feel out of step. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the that's very common. I just think you know the idea that I'm the only person with this problem. Yeah. I I mean, I just think if only America was full of people with 401ks. Do you really think that's what's going on in this country? Do you think no. people have planned for their retirements? I don't think they have. It's interesting, though, because uh, now that you're saying that, I understand what you're saying, although you don't explicitly make that connection in the piece that your problems are universal. Over time, as you sort of documented your own life and books, wh- what kind of, wh- what are these reactions you get from people? I mean, the point is, like, if I were sitting there and saying in the book, I feel so alone, and then saying, and I'm saying that I feel so alone because I know you do, too. Yeah. I would be breaking the third wall. You'd be moving on to the uh, self-help bestseller list. I mean, I'm not doing that. Yeah. It's supposed to be a good book. It's not supposed to be a piece of crap. Right. I mean, you know, I'm like assuming that like, you know, the people are with me. So after doing this book, there's probably no genre of books that uh, elicits such a passionate response in certain readers than, than books about addiction. What has your relationship over time been with people and fans who who do identify with your your work? Um, well, it's actually you know it's really nice. I have to say, like I'm I'm amazed about this. You know, my last book came out in 2001, and I, you know, not a week goes by when somebody doesn't walk up to me in the street and t- like hugs me and tells me that you know that like something I wrote like didn't you know you know save their life or whatever it is yeah I mean even now and that's been you know I mean it, it does make me think I should have written more like I should not have you know been so lazy as I've been there the the style that you write in which uh sort of raw uh, very unfiltered style you're pretty much willing to talk about anything about your own life and uh you're pretty openly documenting it um, from a young age was at the time it came out controversial um, mm-hmm. and uh, not many people doing it. Uh, today, that style of writing is Tumblr. It's live journal. It's it's there's this whole lineage of internet writing that's very much based on those kind of principles. Um, I mean, it's the internet is overflowing with uh, oversharing and 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 people writing in a very naked, honest way about their own lives. 
do you read that stuff and do you identify with it at all? No, well, I, I actually, you know, I have to say, you know, the book is called Prozac Nation because it doesn't sound like a memoir. They didn't want it to be a memoir. They wanted it to be a novel. Yeah. Or they wanted it to be a study of depressed people. The one thing they didn't want it to be was a memoir because they didn't think a memoir would sell. They thought, who would buy a memoir by somebody who's 26 and no one's heard of? And, I'm, you know, that I, that's how ridiculous this was. Yeah. They, it was just, like, unheard of for somebody to write a memoir. Like, I mean, can you imagine? It's, uh, it's proven fairly popular in the intermediate years. No, I mean, that's like, do you, like they were, this was how crazy it was. Like, I couldn't, I mean, I had to, like, argue with them about this. And then I was like, and I want to be on the cover. I mean, and can you imagine, like, I, I actually, like, was that bold. I was like, I'm being on the cover. Okay, we're not putting something else on the cover. It's going to be me. That's it. Like, I mean, I'm right about this. I'm, I mean, I was like, it's going to be just, like, a record album. And I'm right. And you're wrong. And I'm sure. And I was just that way. I was just sure. Now, I don't know how things would have been if I weren't just sure. Like, I might have said, okay, call it a novel. I'm, I mean, God, what if I were a pushover? Imagine. I mean, most people are pushovers. You know? I think about that. You know, it matters so much. Like, I, I totally didn't, I wasn't interested in being a writer. I wanted to be a rock star. I had, like, I mean, I never liked this whole thing. I wanted, I, I just have no musical talent. <laughs> but I had no interest in literature at all. I totally and completely wanted to be on a stage. And I just couldn't believe I got stuck with this. You know, I couldn't believe I was stuck with, like, the written word, which is so so dull compared to music you know but I just thought okay I'm gonna like work this out so that it works for me you know I'm going to make it very noisy and that was you know I was just absolutely positive that this was the right way for it to be um I mean I would like you know just argue with anybody who didn't see that this was the right thing to do but the whole thing is, like, at this point, you know, it's everybody writing about their life, whether they know how to write or not. I mean, the fact is, any of my books could have been a novel also, because they're just well-written books. It's, and I think that's what people don't understand. Just because you have a story to tell doesn't mean you should be telling it. It's got to be well-written. I mean, the whole point is that, you know, you should know how to write. You know, it's like, it's not your gift to give the world just because, like, you have a pen or you have a computer or you have a typewriter or whatever. You know, that's why, like, there's just so much available content and it feels as if it's hard to, like, get people to read your stuff. It is hard to get people to read your stuff. It has to be good. Do you think, you're, do you, think you could have come out if, uh, with a book like this today? Well, but like Prozac Nation, if you were 25 now, would, would this would this book work? Would it be the same? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I don't know that it would have been the, the, the shock value of it being true wouldn't like matter. Yeah, because the thing that was shocking was that it was true. But, you know. I mean, so you don't have that, but like. I would like to think I'd come out with something else shocking because I'd still be me. But surely, you know, if you take the Internet as a whole, say, not its median maybe, but there are good writers who are writing Tumblr blogs about cutting themselves and doing coke. I mean, doesn't sort of the law of humanity suggest that there will be things will rise out of the muck? Of course, of course they will. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would I would hope so. I mean, that's my point is that like, yes, it's like any I mean, things that are good are still good and rare. And they're still rare. You know. It's like, but I think something really somebody has to invent some other new thing now. I mean, what do you mean by that? I don't know. There's got to be some other new thing. Like the truth is not like the new thing anymore. 
like it's no longer shocking. It's no longer shocking. That that's an interesting statement. So, what is it like returning now that you're? I mean, this wave of articles you've been writing over the last, I guess, couple of years, are sort of the first uh, the first writing you've done in the the internet period. Um, they're going online next to all of this no longer shocking writing. Uh, has it changed the stakes at all for you? Does it feel different to, to write online? Well, no, I mean, I, I really, I think it's, you know, for me now, I just, I enjoy doing this because I enjoy doing it. I feel like it's funny, you know, I feel like you can shock people now by saying that, like, Lena Dunham has inexcusable thighs. I mean, she does. You just ruined my next question. No, go ahead. <laughs> you know, that seems to be, you know, yeah. it seems to be that, like, it's, I guess, like, that's what's shocking is that, like, you, you know that you're critical I mean apparently like you can't be mean so you're n- it's not surprising to you that you ruffle some feathers with a statement like that that you know I, no you it, know actually the it's of- totally surprising to me it really is really I believe she put her thighs into play <laughs> I believe as we say in law she opened the door do you feel like that like the rules have changed has, has is is it getting more conservative in a way that's ridiculous <laughs> the woman appears naked on TV. I think we all have a right to say whatever the fuck we want to. No, no, no. I mean more conservative in that there are people who feel like you should, that that mean is off the table online and and that writing. I mean, I look at the comments about things I write. Yeah. And they're pretty fucking mean. Yeah. I mean, so like, I don't know why I can't be mean in the things I say signed by me. So what? How does it feel? That, that how do the mean comments feel? I, I don't look at them. I mean, but I, I but I hear about them. I mean, I've got, I get like, the idea. Uh, I, 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 I Googled uh, Elizabeth Wurzel's rant about millennials is magnificently incoherent. Ten worst lines from Elizabeth Wurzel's crazy screed against millennials. I had I actually was not against millennials. I think that's not really the right way to put it. Well, okay, so let's talk about that piece. It's sort of a story about how people in their twenties you you don't have any breakout uh, stars or breakout voices yeah. in, among people in their 20s and you posit uh, Lena Dunham as an example. I actually say she I thought she was a breakout An voice. example of the of the the rare the rare breed that there's not there's no she has no peers there's no one else in her position among people in their 20s. And I was surprised when I read this cuz I went back and was looking at your um, uh, New Yorker music pieces and just by pure chance the first one that came up was uh, a piece about um, uh, Ice T's um, cop. Uh, what is the song? Cop killer. Yeah. So this is a quote. So you, the the piece is excellent. Actually, we'll we'll link to it in the, the show notes if you have a New Yorker. Um, it's it's it starts with a description of a a middle aged man who'd grown up in the '60s, member of SDS, sort of a revolutionary character, um, and he says. Um, at last, a kind of music has come along that completely baffles me and everyone else in my generation. I just, I don't understand why anyone list, likes it. So this is a piece about a generational disconnect with rap. This is a piece that came out in 1992. Mm-hmm. Do you feel any, uh, do you feel like you're in a volatile situation sort no. of making a statement like that? No, I have actually I have plenty of friends that are in their 20s. Because when I heard it, I was like, "Why?" Well, I, I most of the bands that that I know of are, are people in their twenties. I mean, it seems like a sort of a, a, a gross generalization. I actually this. don't. I feel like I have to say I don't think it's that. Much, I I don't think it's so much about music. I think it's it's other things. I wasn't entertainment at large. I think it's entertainment at large. I'm actually I'm real, I am I do, but I don't think it was against. I think that was the thing that was that I. I do think I made the point of saying I would like to know more right. about people in their 20s, and I'm wondering why I don't. I mean, I'm kind of like, it's not something, I'm I'm actually bothered by that. I'm not angry at them. I'm angry at the world. But do you really think that there's been some sort of a, a drop-off in the output of people in their 20s? And, I think and that's, there's been a drop-off in, like, the um, ability to, like, get things moving along. Huh. I think there's been... I think somehow looks to me like apprenticeships go on forever. And I do think that a lot of it is in tech. I think that's where most of that energy has gone to. I think it's like that's where the money is. But I think that's where the energy is. Isn't there a possibility that things haven't changed and it just looks different from the outside? 
that could be. Like that, like not that I'm like. But I think uh, the fact that it looks different from the outside, I think it, I think I said that it might look different from the outside because of how the web makes everything look. Right. And do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering like how, I mean, it's audacious to write the piece in the first place. Like I would just be like, well, I'm not going to touch this issue like with a 10 foot pole. I don't want to come off as Andy Rooney here, like prognosticating against the young. But when you chose to write about that, you, you must have known that you would be um, rubbing young people the wrong way in a way that, that it would provoke the Internet. But I always want people to prove me wrong. Right. I mean, that's fine. Prove me wrong. So do you see these pieces as part of like a dialogue with other writers on the Internet? Well, I mean, I'm not participating in the dialogue. But like, <laughs> I mean, but I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm really not. I'm not going to like write more about this. But yeah, I mean, I'm just but it's like, fine, do something. Yeah. You you have said that that you've made a uh, a career of emotion um, and you maybe can tell me what you mean by that. But I took it to mean that uh, you've let your own emotion and, and interest in your own emotions uh, drive your writing and, and, and give a focus to it. Could you ever see divorcing yourself from yourself as a topic? and retiring Elizabeth Wurzel, the character? Look, I think, you know, I have to say, men decide what's important. So, like, apparently it's really important to write a book about China, let's or Russia. For, for example. For example. You know what? If you want to write a book about China, read eight books about China and then write one. Anybody can do that. You know, I write political columns also. I've written plenty of them. Mm-hmm. I write them just as well as Hendrik Hertzberg does in The New Yorker. Absolutely. I, didn't but, know, I did not know that at all. <laughs> oh, I read stuff I've written in The Wall Street Journal. Oh, okay. That's all paywalled. That's why, oh. it, why it's a black hole to me. Sorry. I mean, but I can like write about, <laughs> yeah. you know, politics. Yeah. Like, no problem. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do that who can write. Yeah. It's not hard. Um, in The Atlantic. Did you, I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, you know, like, I can write about, like, Romney and Gingrich and no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not questioning whether I, you but could, but I mean, in a larger sense, like this project that is writing about your own life, where, where are the exits on it? Where does it but, go? Uh, but I, I, here's the point I wanted to, to just make about this. Yeah. So you know, I can do that, and sometimes I think I should do that, but you know, lots of people do that, and I think people think that stuff is important. And people think writing books about Pakistan is important and whatever. But you know what? As I said, anyone can do that. Like, all you have to do to write about Pakistan is read nine books about Pakistan, maybe not just eight. And the thing is, to write a book about the human condition actually requires, like, talent. Like, you have to actually know what you're doing. It's really hard. It's actually really, really, really hard. I really don't think I'm writing about myself. I think I'm writing about how people live. I'm using myself as an example. I think I write frequently about other people. I'm not so self-involved. I'm paying very close attention to what other people are doing too. Mm-hmm. Um, most people are not involved. They're, the problem is that they're not involved at all. They're not paying attention to themselves or to other people. They're just not paying attention. Um, I pay attention to what I'm doing and what other people are doing. I think that's usually what I have going on. I'm very aware of what other people are doing. Do you um, reread your old writing? I mean, do you like do you go back and go like, "Holy shit, I knew that 2 years ago?" Um, no, I I never I I really like I have to say I know I haven't looked I mean, I never read my old books except I'm doing a reading in a couple of weeks. Plug plug it. Oh, whoa, whoa. I don't Oh. Oh, yeah, okay. I should say that. I'm doing a reading on October 24th at number eight. Number eight. That That's a bar? It's a, it's a bar. It's a club. Okay. We'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Go see, go see Elizabeth. Yes, you should. It's actually will be, but it's, and I'm doing some, and I'm reading something about addiction because that's what the theme is. And so I was looking at, at, um, at more now again, because I was looking at for something and I, I was pleasantly surprised at how well it reads. You know, it was, I mean, it, I don't, spend a lot of time reading my old books. But when I, I, every so often I do a reading from something and I do look. 
And I actually have to say, I recently looked at Bitch, and I was so shocked at how dense every page was with information. And I thought, my God, I worked so hard on that book. I actually like said to a lawyer in my office, you think you work hard because you have billable hours. You don't know from work. I don't care if you're here till four in the morning tonight. You have never worked a day as hard as I worked on this book. You are a lazy bum. Lazy. Like, it doesn't matter that I barely do shit around here. I have worked. And I was like, I just said that to him, and he he looked like he was going to cry. Because <laughs> I'm actually so, so mean. I mean, not most of the time, but when I say things like that, it's awful. Because I just, because it's like, I'm just so absolute, but it's true. I worked so hard on that book. I mean, I had actually, I hired researchers, and I had... So, I mean, I had files and files and files of research, and I used all of it. I mean, it was really insane. I have no idea what I was trying to accomplish there. But every page has, like, you know, points to, you know, it was just, it's crazy. Actually, I, re- I reread, before I did this, I read the uh, the prologue to it, and I, it, yeah, I was like, wow. Uh, at this rate, uh, she's going to refer to every pop cultural phenomenon of the early 90s by the end of this book. I mean, just the intro I, has I probably 40 or 50 pop cultural references in it. I mean, but every page has like, but you you obviously like didn't get to the point where there are like references to the 30s, to the oh, 1830s. Yeah, yeah sorry, not just yeah. <laughs> 90s pop culture, like uh, uh, a thousand years of uh, of culture. Yeah, it was really, I have no idea, but at that point in time, I mean, I was on a ton of drugs and I was just barely sleeping and I was just crazy, you know, and that's that. There's just, that explains everything really. But um, I, uh, I look at that and I just think, you know, what on earth? It was, I mean, that was just that, that was, I mean, it was a labor of love. I really, you know, cared a lot about that, but it was so much work. That book is not about me at all. Um, well, I think that that kind of covers what what I want to talk about. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't hit upon? Well, enough about me. <laughs> um, I don't know. Shame on America. We did we did say that at first. Shame on America. Shame on America. Government's shut down, but possibly not by the time this airs. I mean, but forget shame on the Republicans. Really shame on America for turning into like a land that's only good for not just the rich, but the extremely rich. Shame on New York City for like, I am a fifth generation Manhattanite and it doesn't matter to Manhattan if I like live here or not. Isn't that kind of the best part about New York that no one cares if you leave? No, it should matter that like people who are creative and not just transfers of capital between one idiot and another, like continue to occupy, you know, the thoroughfares of Manhattan. Like it, it should actually matter a tiny bit. It's like it's not I mean, Brooklyn is like Brooklyn is actually it used to be just a bunch of ethnic enclaves. It's what it should mostly be. It's not like it should not just be, you know, it should not be like for like bearded 20 somethings. It's hey, really, hey, I'm right here. I know, but <laughs> I'm just saying like that's that's like there's got to be more to Brooklyn than that. And, you know, it's it's not like that. It's it's just this is ridiculous. You can't you can't like have that. I mean, what are they? All the boroughs should be kind of integrated. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the future holds. I guess we'll have to have uh, Bill de Blasio on here. Oh, I mean, I wish I wish there were some hope in like in his. I mean, I voted for him, but I mean, I I just don't hold that much hope for his mayorship. I don't hold that much hope for like New York City. Would you leave? I want to go to Los Angeles. Have you? You've never done lived there before? No, I can't even drive. That but could, that could be problematic. I actually think it won't be. I think I'll have people drive me everywhere. Oh yeah. Don't I seem like a person who could just enjoy that very much I can see you enjoying it immensely I think I would do just fine I uh I I can't argue with that uh thank you Elizabeth Wurzel for coming in uh our editor is Lauren Kirchner my co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky uh rate us on iTunes tell a friend about this podcast and we'll be back next week 
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.